Hi, this is Angie and welcome to my first Longgang Stories. For this episode, I have a chat with a longtime hero and friend of mine, Diana Saw. She is an amazing woman who left her position as a regional general manager for a billion dollar company to set up a social enterprise in Cambodia. Um, she is also now working in a new group called Borderless360, whose focus is to help refugees. We discuss her insights into charity and altruism, plus some of the crazy things she's experienced in her life. I actually don't remember how we met Angie, so you have to refresh my memory. <laughs> I think this was many years ago. Uh, my friend bought a bag that was made from recycled fish feed. On the tag, I think it said Bloom Bags or something. And then I was like, oh, this is so cool. I want to check it out. So I went online and found the website and I found that it was based in Cambodia, right? This is a cooperative that kind of helped women in need and provided like work for them. And then it was also recycling. And I was like, this is so fucking cool. I'm gonna like, you know, do a bit of CSI. And then I found your Facebook page. And then I went to like a stalker, add you. And then uh, I remember like during those years, you were posting really interesting like commentary, social Thank commentary you. on like what you were doing. I don't know how we started talking and then we became friends. Yeah, I think the feeling's mutual, Angie. <laughs> I also really enjoy the stuff you write. And yeah, your your comics are amazing. Thank you. Yeah, so I, yeah, I make it a point to you know, yeah, keep in touch with you over the years. Each time I'm back, maybe we catch up for coffee and it's been, I mean, really good to meet someone who politically is on the same page and, you know, also has the social conscience. Yeah, so thanks for inviting me on this podcast. It's my very first. Yeah, I'm so excited to like <laughs> pop your virgin podcast <laughs> Okay, okay. You know, right, before um, I asked you for this podcast, I actually didn't really know about your history. And then I did a bit of sleuthing uh, on your LinkedIn page. And then I found out that you have like an MA in philosophy and politics. You know, I didn't you... even know I have a LinkedIn page. My goodness. What? I you always tell you... people I'm not on LinkedIn. So <laughs> this you, must so have been many, many years ago, probably. I don't, I don't even, yeah, I don't even remember. <laughs> yeah, so anyways. And then you were like a country manager for like a MNC, right? For yes, a while. yeah. Um, and then you went to Cambodia and founded Bloom. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. Okay, so yeah, I, I, I do have an MA in, in political philosophy, which I guess explains my interest in politics and in how best to organize society. And then um, after graduation, I joined a big uh, publishing company and ended up being the, well, the GM for Asia for, for this uh, company. But I was bored, I guess, that, that's the best way to put it, bored and, and mm, not very happy working for a big corporation. And I think, you know, it was hard because I remember at the time only one friend encouraged me to quit the job and go and pursue what I really wanted to do. Everybody else thought it was stupid or irresponsible to walk away from a, from a good paying job. Um, yeah, and, but eventually I did. And then I didn't know what to do with my life. And I went on holiday with um, a friend. Um, and she and her husband had adopted these children from Cambodia who turned out to have been trafficked. So my friends, very amazingly, they went back to Cambodia and they started a charity um, that's an anti-child trafficking N NGO called River Kids. And I actually uh, helped them to register the NGO in Cambodia. And I remember going with the first director, Sopon, to look for premises. And and that was how I, I, I entered the country. I decided that I myself would 
um, start a social enterprise for single mothers because the research shows that um, it's single income families that tend to sell or uh, traffic their children because you know they're, they're the only assets that the families have. So my friend started an NGO and then I started a social enterprise called Bloom Cambodia. And the idea was to give women jobs. Originally, I didn't plan to move to Cambodia. I thought that, okay, I'd saved this amount of money. How should I spend the money? And originally, I thought 50,000 Singapore dollars. But when I, when I investigated the charity scene in Cambodia, I realized that it was very not transparent, to put it mildly. Mm. And I wasn't sure about corruption. And also the other thing was, you know, if I'm going to give money, I want to make sure that the money reaches the people it's intended for. And also, I wanted to make sure that they would be working in a nice environment, not in a sweatshop. And I had no control over that once I, I donate the money, you know, because it's not transparent. So your intention actually was to set it up and then leave and then like let it run itself. But then you got there and you're like, oh, fuck, I guess I have to do this whole thing. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Because, um, yeah, I had originally... I looked at the Basque County in, in Spain. I don't know if you've heard of Mondragon, but they are amazing. It's a workers' cooperative, and it was started in the 50s, and they have over 250 companies now that employ more than 80,000 people, and they contribute something like 5% to the GDP of the Basque um, wow. region. And um, in the times of the 80s, when uh, Spain was hit quite badly by the steel crisis, um, that area under Mondragon, the people had high, uh, high employment. And so I actually set up Bloom as a workers' cooperative, not really as a social enterprise. And the difference is in the workers' cooperative that the workers own the business. So if we make money, for instance, the workers can decide how much of the profits to keep and share among themselves and how much to reinvest in the company. So that was the original dream. And a, a social enterprise is just very simply, it's just an enterprise, a business run along social lines. So, you know, the mission is not primarily to make money, but to create social value. So there is this thing called SROI, social return on investment that people in that industry use. Eventually, it it be just became a social enterprise because after two, two and a half years, we broke even and we start making money, which is quite, um, I think it's typical for SMEs. And I had said that, okay, now it's making money, I'm going to go home, I'll pass you the business because it was meant for you guys anyway, I'd set this up for you. I never planned to live so long in Cambodia. So imagine my surprise when I found out that the women were not at all like me. I had assumed that everybody was like me um, and that we you know, you want to have freedom and run your own business and autonomy is a big deal. But actually the women just wanted to go to work, get paid at the end of the month or, or week, which was the case in those days, and and not have any responsibility or stress of owning a business. So like, that's how I you... ended up stuck. <laughs> why do you think that's so? Like why like do you think that the women are not eager to step up and be like, hey, I wanna be in control of this and then, you know, uh, be a boss. Maybe yeah. it's a little bit riskier than, say, like having a paid job, but but it also gives you a lot more returns, right, if it, it's successful. Yeah, I think it's that's the reason why most of my friends are not entrepreneurs. They all prefer to work for an MNC, even though, you know, they may dislike the job or whatever. At the end of the day, the security and the knowledge that you're going to get a paycheck, and I think that was the case with, with our women. Also, the other thing is, you know, their lives are so difficult already because they live very precariously um, because of the poverty and, and the unstable family re 
situation. So this is just another source of stress that they, they, they can do without, I guess. I mean, the women said very clearly to me, we don't want the business, we want you to own the business, we just want to come to work. So get paid <laughs> and go home. Right. And actually, that was the right thing because in, I had started in 2006. In 2008, the US financial crisis started and orders stopped. And you know, uh, if I didn't have savings, because that's the number one thing that kills SMEs, uh, lack of cash flow. And because it's relatively cheap to run a business in Cambodia in those days, so I was able to sustain the business. So during that time, we didn't sack anyone. We just um, improved on designs and we tried to improve on quality. So that tied the business over. Did you eventually manage to train up anybody who wanted to take over the reins of the business? Yes. Um, and that's actually a very good question because that's the point of, uh, I mean, it goes to the basics of this workers' cooperative because there will be someone who's a superstar, who's mm -hmm. very good yeah. at the job and very driven and, you know, wants to own the business but, um, you know, does not particularly want to share it with the rest because, right. yeah, because she feels, you know, she's much better than the rest of the team. Also, like, I'm putting in so much work. Why are you, the rest yes. of you, like, why do you deserve the, the extra money? Absolutely, yeah. riding on my coattails mm -hmm. and, yeah, why should I share equally with you all so yeah there was someone unfortunately this person also turned out to be very cunning so what she did was uh, she inflated receipts and basically she stole from the business la. yeah and when I threatened well when I did sack her um, she threatened to throw acid on my face so oh, <laughs> yeah shit. it was that wow, was yeah, quite a story so, so I ran to Siem Reap I was in Phnom Penh at the time yeah yeah, I, I know you have like so many crazy stories because I always read them on your Facebook when you still had an active Facebook. Um, and, but also when, when you come back and we, we have like our Kopi meetup sessions, you would just tell me all the crazy, crazy things that That's happened to you. That's the wonderful thing about living in Cambodia. These things will you will never <laughs> you will never encounter in Singapore, yeah. right? Because everybody is so, you know, in this teeny it's tiny like, box. I don't even know where to buy acid if I wanted to <laughs> splash it on someone's Battery face. acid. <laughs> car, car, car workshop. Okay. Thank you. At least now I know if no, I ever need to do, do it. it. <laughs> okay, so you had Bloom on for a period of time and then you sold it off, right? Or you closed it down? Well, after 10 years, I decided I wanted to change my life. So I started Bloom um, Bags in 2006 and in 2010, I decided I would start a guest house because uh, Bloom Bags was really for the women. I didn't take a sal salary. I, it wasn't, you know, I didn't want anything from th that business. But I realized that I had to eat as well. So I started a guest house called Bloom Garden Guest House in 2010 and that was great fun. I met people from all over the world and I mean that was great fun. But in um, yeah, after 10 years, 2016, I decided that I just wanted to change my life. So I sold my guest house to a Dutchman and then um, for the social enterprise, I gave away the machines to the women. So some of them became small business owners sewing clothes for their neighbours. Um, and some of them found jobs with bigger NGOs, so yeah. But basically it was out of self-interest. I just was tired and I decided I wanted to change my life. Yeah. Just um, to extend the conversation, did you get kind of jaded after running this for so long? And like, because I imagine like when you first started, you must have been super idealistic. Oh, I wanted to help these women and blah, blah, blah. And then over the course of 10 years, I, I know you got like, your, your, your vision probably has changed, right? Yeah, it was, I mean, okay, first of all, to be an entrepreneur and people who have done this will know it 
can be very lonely. And to do this in another country is, is, is even more lonely. You have to, well, basically I had to do everything, right, from the HR to the training to the logistics, marketing, whatever. So it was, it was very, very tiring. Plus, you know, if you think it's difficult managing people, try doing it in another, another language, another culture. Mm -hmm. It was very difficult. And also, in terms of the impact, you know, I wasn't sure whether working on the ground made so much sense to me anymore because I started out like that because, you know, I thought as an individual, I shouldn't just wait for governments or businesses to, to change the world, be the change you want to see, is, is, as people always say. So that's what I did. But I realized that as individuals, there's only so much we can do because a lot of the big changes have to come from policy. And, you know, the most obvious example is environment um, damage. 70% of the uh, carbon emissions come from actually only 100 companies in the world. So all of us as individuals can do our part, not buying single-use plastic, recycling, or what have you. But with a stroke of the pen, the government can change you know, makes so much difference to They can just outlaw limiting. like single use plastic and within that, you know, out yes, with that outlaw absolutely. you can, you know, stop how much plastic from being used, right? Like as opposed to telling, Oh, you, people oh please, you know, recycle. It's just a distraction from the, the real problem which is that companies still continue to use plastic. One thing that I really wanted to ask you, I think whether like there was a little bit of a savior complex for people who want to go overseas and help people from third world countries because you know people in first world countries we are like oh we are so privileged we have so much we should give to them and they need our help is that true i definitely feel that there is a middle class guilt thing that a lot of my friends um and it's not just singaporeans but i had a Good, I have a good friend, Australian, and one day she said to me, you know, Diana, because all of us felt so guilty spending money because, you know, we know that our Cambodian teammates lived in such poverty. So in the beginning, we didn't have air conditioning, we didn't have water heaters, we lived all very simply. And um, she said to me, we didn't come here to live like Kamais, we came here to lift their lives to be like us. And that's the other thing that I learned also that, you know, deprivation is also very, um, it, you can't generalize because, you know, for people who've never grown up with hot water, they don't feel deprived, you know. So, yeah, yeah it's um, it's us like looking yes, through our lens of privilege absolutely. and going, oh, you poor thing. Yeah. And it's a question I always get as well. Like, why did I have to go to Cambodia to help people? Don't you know that there are poor people in Singapore as well? I mean, for me, it was just very simple. Uh, you know, people also ask me, why did I choose Cambodia? Cambodia mm. chose me. If I had right. encountered child trafficking in China or, you know, in Malaysia, I would there. probably have moved there as well. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings. We all bleed. I don't see a difference between a Khmer and a Singaporean. You know, if I can do my part, I'll to do my people, part. Yeah. But like, the saviour mm. complex is something that's quite interesting. I have a good Russian friend and he's, he's diagnosed me as a particular sort of weirdo that needs medicine. Um, <laughs> what and, sort of medicine? And I'm, um, I'm overly empathetic. So mm -hmm. I, apparently there's a group of people like me who take on other people's suffering too much to the point that you yourself suffer. And you have to acknowledge that suffering does exist in the world. But what's the best way um, to, to deal with this suffering? And that may be an argument that you don't intervene because you have no idea, you know, your intervention, what, it'll, what will happen. And I give you a, a good story. When I was first working with River Kids, there was a girl who was cross-eyed and we found um, an NGO that would fix her eyesight. And when her eyesight was fixed and she looked beautiful and normal, her sister-in-law sold her into sex trafficking. Fuck. So 
this is an example of you know your good intentions can lead to bad consequences. That's really fucked up. Yes, and I always tell my friends because they're all about good intentions. They think that yes. that's the way to judge a human being. But your good intentions are neither necessary nor sufficient for good consequences. It's got nothing to do with you. So that, that like I said, there's an argument to be made about how best to help. And think, I'm not sure about yeah. the answer. I think we also had this conversation about like how because there is so much help going into third world countries, then there are opportunities for people to kind of exploit uh, those sentiments of wanting to help. So for example, I know you, was it you who told me that there were orphanages where the kids were not orphans, the kid, like, you know, the parents send them there or they just dump them there knowing that they will be taken care of. Yeah. Or like people who do their gap year travel, wanting to do good in the world, you know, they go there, they, they make bonds with the kids and then, the, then they leave the kids and then the kids are just devastated yes. after, you know, bonding with all these volunteers. Yes. Um, and they, they, they just start having like a loss of trust in people, right? Because yes. they come and they leave. Yeah, really these, um, <laughs> yeah, these short-term volunteerism is a big problem and I think Australia's taken the lead in this. Um, they've, I think they've said that they, are not, they don't allow volunteerism in, um, to orphanages in countries like Cambodia because the damage is real. I mean, first of all, you know, it's not our business to take care of other people's children and that's why when I went in, rather than start a children's charity, I decided to help the parents because if the parents can have a stable income, have a stable life, then the kids will be stable. But I understand children are very appealing in terms of donations and all that. They also and look great on Instagram. Yes, <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's true that... Um, I remember, you know, the first time uh, these Canadian volunteers left and the children were all crying. And the second time, I remember, especially this Vietnamese, ethnic Vietnamese girl, she wasn't so sad when the next volunteer left. And by the time, you know, maybe the third or fourth volunteer left, she couldn't even be bothered to say bye. So, you know, what's the point of forming these attachments to people who are just going to abandon you, right? So I think it does screw up them. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think we have to think very carefully when we go to volunteer what we're actually doing, what we want to achieve, and in the end, who does it help? You know, maybe it helps your resume more than it helps the beneficiary. The, the biggest help is really to yourself because you feel good about, like, the shit that you've done. That's right. <laughs> so I actually, um, right. on one of the Facebook posts, I made a joke about starting this charity called Charity for Vanity. And oh, I, I remember said, that. <laughs> But please repeat yeah. it. And I said that, okay, my charity will follow you with cameras as, as you go about doing your work <laughs> because we understand if you're feeding the children, you don't have hands to take selfies, so we'll take it for you. <laughs> and the top of the line one would be we would fly you in on a helicopter and you would parachute down into the rubbish <laughs> dump while you give out biscuits to the children and we'll be filming you. <laughs> the amazing thing was some of my friends actually took it seriously and said, do it, there's a market for this. There would be people who would pay. Of course, there Look, would be like, I think there would be amazing opportunities <laughs> for this. Like, I can, off the top of my head, I already know some people who's going to sign up for the top of the line stuff. Jeez, but I was taking the piss. The clue is in charity for vanity. <laughs> I think you're like a great entrepreneur. You just need to take your idea seriously <laughs> and actually make this happen. You make like big bucks, you know. <laughs> Uh, it's also tragic, uh, the fact that, you know, this thing is, you, you taking the piss is something yeah, that yeah, people, people are like, took yeah, yeah, seriously. please do this, yeah. you know, like. I mean, you know, my husband and I, we like to, you know, joke around all the time. I mean, to go back to this idea of social entrepreneurship and the impact that we did, um, 
one of the unintended consequences was, you know, when I started making the bags out of the recycled materials, the Cambodians started copying the bags and they were everywhere. They are everywhere now. If you go to the night market, the old market in Siem Reap. So, you know, in that way, I actually created this cottage industry, right? That was never my intention. I had only wanted to start this social enterprise, but uh, there was this whole other industry and a lot of people are now having jobs, getting yep. paid for to make this product. So indirectly, so, yeah, you've done that, a lot that, of good. So, so yeah, so on, on a ground level, I mean, there are a couple of things that do have um, positive impact. The other one is, you know, I think there's a footballer in, in the UK now, and he decided that during COVID, these kids who go to school should get fed. And I think he, he raised money to feed these poor children in the UK. And when the government saw that, the government was embarrassed into doing something about it. And now they've taken over mm. this, this project. So often the ground kind of work does have you know, an impact in society. So you know, I, I don't want to say that it's only policy that works because it's, whole, it's a whole ecosystem, right? It, yeah, they both like, feed think, into each you know, other. Because the thing is, government moves slowly, you know, all the bureaucracy moves fucking slowly. Right. And also yeah. in terms of cultural shifts, right, like very often activists or, or maybe like people like yourself have to be the people at the on the ground doing the, sh the shit work, like, you know, paving the way for like governments to go like, oh, OK, this is perhaps how we can go about doing certain things. Um, because on their own, they would never pioneer stuff like this, right? Mm. Like, and because I remember when I first saw your bag, this was way before like all the markets and like you know recycling uh, things became trendy. Mm. And this was way before. Yeah, this and was I, in two thousand and six. Yeah, yeah. and I remember being so struck by it because I was like, "This is fucking oh, brilliant, man!" Yeah. Which is why, like, uh, I mean, people who are listening now, they're like, "Oh, what's the big deal about you know a recycled bag made of like trash?" trash mm. um, material, right? But this was in 2006, which is what, oh my fucking God, and 14 that's, years ago. that's the thing, right? Because, you know, there's a lot of innovation in these developing countries because people need money. So mm. that's how we came up with this idea because we wanted to have very low capital and mm. recycling is one way, you know, to, to use cigarette boxes we made into jewellery that was very popular with the French who like, like to smoke. Right. But yeah, so, um, <laughs> yeah, so, and the other thing that, like recently, I've been doing research um, in agri-tech because I've joined this really interesting company. And I found two companies in Cambodia that came up with very innovative solutions. One is called an eco-box. And what they did is they soaked burlap bags in water. And the burlap bags get get wet, stay wet for three to four days. And then they, they wrap the burlap bag inside a bamboo box. And the bamboo helps to retain the temperature to about 20 degrees. And with this simple box, instead of using styrofoam, with this box, they are able to transport vegetables that oh, stay wow. fresh for, for longer periods of time. And this other project called Rat Hunter, um, they wanted to, because rats eat a lot of the rice and mm -hmm. the grain in Cambodia, so they wanted to catch the rats. And they used sound. So um, it was a 3D printed box, and then there's a small speaker and they had recorded the noise of snake. Apparently, they, they did the research and rats are most afraid of snakes and not, not cats. And then um, that scared the rats and then they got into the trap and then if the rats can be kept alive in Cambodia, they eat rats for food. Um, the rats can be sold for food. So there are these innovative um, ideas, you know, but we never hear about it because that's one problem living in a developing country versus living in a city like Singapore. In Singapore, mm. we're so plugged in, you know, I have access to 
skills to expertise to capital markets you know and anything but living in in Cambodia even though you have all these ideas there's no one to help you bring it to market help you to develop and that's why I think that actually this is an untapped market and I would love to start um, something like the Acumen Fund Jacqueline Noble Gretz she's one of my personal heroes and basically it's called patient capital so rather than all these venture capitalists and angel investors and what have you Patient capital lists go in there, you know, being patient, you take a longer term view, 10 to 15 years, and you invest your money with this long term view that it's going to bring about social change. They get together these professionals who can help you grow your business. It's kind of like an accelerator, I guess. And I, yeah. I, oh, I really like the idea of that because, you know, there's just so much angel investment or like capital ven- venture people who are pouring money into fucking stupid, like, Innova- so-called innovations like a juicer f- for like a pre-pack uh, bag of vegetables yes yeah or like a, a machine that makes cookies only I like, hear fuck you this crap, and you this know? is this is really a problem I feel Fucking about Silicon Valley yes yeah, Silicon Valley <laughs> and about empathy you know I mean I remember like in Silicon Valley one of the things they were talking about like okay we can help you predict I mean we can help you get your lunch you know with so that you don't have to leave your desk we can even predict what you want to eat with its algorithms and all that and you mo- the moment you open your door and you you know you see a homeless man who, who needs some food and they just ignore them so it's this idea that you know people want to do good from afar you know but when you encounter the actual person you, you know don't they care. don't want yeah they don't want to make the effort they don't want to you know, this whole idea of empathy is, 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 is uh, it's something that's very curious to me. Yeah. There is this really interesting thing about like being in a, I guess, a city where people are kind of anonymous. You know, you pass by so many people every day. You're squish, squished in trains. Okay, pre-COVID lah, I'm talking. Yes. Um, but, but at the same time, like, you know, you're, you know they're human, but they're like nothing to you also yes, at the same time. Because you're annoyed by yeah, these people. They're like abstract so I met this very interesting Taiwanese girl in, in Siem Reap and um, yeah she's on a mission to try all the uh, what do you call that mushrooms la. psychedelics <laughs> yeah so, so I think now she's in the Netherlands uh-huh. but Wonderful. she said to me that you know who are we to judge Hitler she's also on this mm-hmm. you know this Buddhist thing like yeah, who are yeah, we yeah. to judge and all that right who are we to judge Hitler And but at the same time she told me that if because she's fallen out with her father because her father disapproves of her lifestyle yep. choices. So if her father was at his death, deathbed, she wouldn't go and see him. And I said, listen to what you're saying. You are saying that you can forgive someone like Hitler because, you Who's know... Who's killed like... Yes, yeah, six million people yeah. at least. And then your father who just doesn't agree with your choices. So it's very funny that you can have empathy for someone who's abstract, something that's abstract. But when you encounter the real life person, that person has hurt you or, you know, somehow... I think it's, it's harder to detach, you know, your own emotions yes. from something that has happened to you. Because yes. you're like, okay, you did this to me. Whereas like Hitler didn't do jack shit yes, to her, you know. Hitler's, absolutely. A, Hitler's a figure in a textbook, you yes. know, that you can kind of make really abstract, like all the yeah. deaths and the torture... But I if mean, you think about it, yeah. there is definitely this cognitive dissonance, right? Just because he's abstract to you, he wasn't abstract yeah. to the six million people who, like, whom he actually exactly. Killed. And and that's the that's the funny thing. Right. I think that's just that that duality or of self, you know, that that there's that ideal self yes. that you're like a kind, benevolent person to everybody you meet, and then there's that, there's that actual you 
where you're like a really fucked up person and you you can't always control how you think or feel. This is really interesting because the older I get, the more I've decided that that Rumi saying, you know, before I was clever, I wanted to change the world. Now I'm wise, I want to change myself. Mm. That really, I do take that seriously. Um, Have you changed? So after I sold my businesses and and whatnot in 2016, that's the direction I was moving towards. I was moving towards introspection and um, meditation. Thing quite a lot. I wasn't really involved in scurrying about, helping here, helping there. Yeah, because I feel that if you can control your temper, if you can learn to be a better person and you know practice loving kindness or whatever, this has an impact on the people around you and society at large. So that was the direction I was moving towards, and then I got stuck um, because of COVID. So that's why I'm in Singapore. Actually, I've been living in Siem Reap. In Cambodia since 2016. It was such a lucky coincidence. I thank like, you. A couple I mean, of months yeah. I wrote to you <laughs> and I was like, "Hey, do you remember me? I, I miss I'm, you. I'm I really hope glad. You. Yeah, I'm really I miss glad." You. And you're actually. like, "Hey, I'm in Singapore." I'm like, "What?" Yes. <laughs> I mean, the other silver lining is that I get to spend yeah. a lot of time with my parents. Mm. But yeah, but since I've been stuck here, I've actually joined a very interesting company called Potato Productions, and mm. originally I joined as a volunteer. Um, with a refugee project, the idea is to try and bring hope to the refugees in the region because there, there are a lot um, running from Myanmar, especially. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's how I've got pulled out of my reverie. You know, when I was like Your yeah, introspective yes, phase. Yes, living. Yeah, living with just me, my husband, and our three dogs. Yeah. And now, yeah, now you're back in back, the grind again. Back in the grind and meeting people, and then re- reminded occasionally that hell is other people. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think the important yeah. thing is also recognizing your other people to to the people that you're othering. <laughs> yeah, so it is this tension again, as we talked about. I'm very mindful, yeah. like I, you know, on the one hand, I want to help these people, and yeah. on the other hand, to the people who I actually know, they drive me up the wall. So it's mm. it's a it's a very good challenge. About I met this guy, you know, when I was staying in a guest house in Bangkok, and in in Thailand, a lot of the young men spend time in the in the monastery, right? And he said that actually you you are in a better position because you live in the real world and every day mm. you face challenges on how to be a better person and grow spiritually. You don't actually have to go and live in a monastery. It's mm. easy to, I think, be detached when you're in a monastery because there's nothing to concentrate on besides yourself. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Like I, yeah. I went on a retreat and it was... Where? Short- uh, wow. Like it's kind of, it's more like an art retreat. It's not like a monastery retreat, but like... Uh, I I went to the countryside in Prague and wow. um, for like two weeks or so, and it was just me, you know, and, and also the host of the house uh, that I stayed in. But we had very little contact, and every day it was just like you know, trying to light the fire because it was in the countryside and it was fucking cold, and then going on walks, and it was very easy to be like nice, right. Right. You know, yeah, and then when you don't have to deal with human beings, yes, and yeah. I, all I had was the company of a cat. Right. Occasionally, wow. my host came over and had like we have dinner, but that was it. And I was like, oh, this is great. I never want to like talk to another human being ever again. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. Right. Yeah, that's why I love climbing mountains because. I mean, you know, you're just basically tr- in survival mode. It's so damn cold and, you know, you still have to climb so so like, much further. That, you don't think of other yeah, things. Yeah, and there's yeah. that, like, just 
focusing on survival. Yes. You know? Like whereas here, you know, when you're back in the in the rat race, you're like, okay, work. I need to make money and I need to like feed myself and you know like retirement and oh, oh I have to pay like Healthcare. insurance. Yeah, yeah, fuck all these. Oh, I can't get sick, you know, because all this money. It's it's so difficult, you know. Yeah. Um, to be human, I think nowadays, and then also then you have to like, oh, am I a good human being? Like, hey, were you the person? one who went to Mongolia and there yes. was this painting? I have that on my phone oh my because <laughs> yes, I have that picture mm. of you guys like painting, yeah. facing this beautiful scenery. Yeah, yeah. That to me oh is just so. It was just it so was beautiful. amazing. It's um, a dream like, for me. Yeah. yeah. So that's the interesting part for of Mongolia for me, like because a lot of people think that oh my god, it's such a great adventure. Um, it it was and it was magical. It was the best um, experience of my life. But at the same time, as a tourist, I like I felt some discomfort in the fact that like y- you know because um, the Mongolian culture is a nomadic culture. So for them, like welcoming to uh, people into their house is very natural. Mm. But now that because it's become like a tourist thing, mm. um, I think things have changed quite a bit. Like just culturally, how they. Tr- you know, it's become like more of a instead of like a cultural tradition to welcome the guests. It there they are that sort of like financial I implication. Understand absolutely what you mean. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean because the place that I went to um, was not in Ulaanbaatar. It was like in uh, Bayan Olgi, where where it's still relatively un unexplored. Mm. So the environment is very pristine, um, but even just with the couple of us that were traveling there, I could see like the amount of destruction that the cars were leaving mm. in in the in the environment mm. um, and also of course when people go there they'll always be litter even though they tell you not to litter and that's the thing about like development for me I guess um, that's always very uh, interesting to think about because I, they say like ecotourism is the best form of t- making money because you don't actually have to set up um, industries and there's lesser pollution, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But then there are also all these intangible changes, like say changes to culture, changes to how people are living, their mindsets. It's globalization. Globalization. Yeah. Um, and, and then the other thing is like, uh, I, I was at the airport. There were like American tourists. At least I think they were American, judging by their accents. And there was this lady who was saying, Oh my gosh! I hope this never changes. You know, like hope it will stay like this forever. Um, otherwise, where am I gonna get go? Like for my holidays, you know, there won't be any places unspoiled as this. And like when I heard that, I was like, WTF, woman! Yeah. Like you know, you want them to stay like backwards yeah. and and undeveloped forever just right. for your enjoyment. Yeah. Like you want people to like not have the the comforts that you enjoy yeah. in yeah. the US or wherever. Um, just so you can like visit them and be like, oh, how quaint yes. and rustic, yes. you know. I hear that um, all the time about Cambodia and yeah. Angkor Wat. I mean, there is, a, so, yeah, I mean, it's hypocrisy, isn't it? And then these people telling them, you know, you have to preserve your rainforest in the meantime in their countries, they've destroyed it all. Yeah, like I think that's yeah. the really, I mean, I do get what she's saying because th- it is beautiful and we do want to preserve these things, right? Like especially rainforests. But at the same time, we have to kind of recognize that these are resources for people who are living there who can, who have very often very little resources. They need to live. I mean, that's the, yeah, that's the the point. I mean, if they didn't, if their governments, which brings me back to this whole uh, third world and first world thing. Like, I think a lot of the reason why a lot of us foreigners went to Cambodia was because it's the sort of country where the government would not help even if it could. Whereas in a country like Singapore, um, social enterprises are part of the part of civil society um, and you know the government if it's a good government it does uh, do things that 
um, vital to the population. So, for instance, in healthcare, and the Singapore government is is good in in that in that area. Um, yeah, but like there are countries like the U.S. where you know they think that charity and all that should be funded by individuals because mm-hmm. there's a significant population that are, I guess, you, you can call them libertarians, meaning that they are all for liberty. They yeah. are f- uh, um, skeptical of authority they and don't want of yeah, yeah. government intervention. So they think that charity, so the arts and all that should be funded by rich people. So, you know, opera and, and whatnot. Mm, yep. But what tends to happen is, that, you know, in like the arts become um, for rich people, by rich people. But So I was, I've also involved in, in an art project with, with this company. And recently I was talking to these artists because one of the things we're trying to do is to help bring the arts digital, mainly because, you know, we were talking about tourism and I'm actually a big fan of uh, augmented reality and virtual rea- yeah. reality for tourism because I think mm. that if we can show people, then you don't have to trample on, to, <laughs> on Angkor Wat and, and yeah. what have you. And, you know, in that way, we ca- kind of limit the damage of tourism. But I have to say, I'm not quite sure that's true because I think for a lot of tourists, they actually want to be there to mm. experience and to tell people I've been to the pyramids or whatnot. But um, my friends were telling me that in Taiwan, art and technology has really taken off because there is no censorship. Whereas in Singapore, there is a systemic problem with Mm. funding. And because a lot of the money comes from the government because there are not enough art patrons in this country. Mm. And I do not know why because it's affluent enough. But because of the funding issue, that's why they, um, they are... I guess they can be censored now. So, you know, there are restrictions. And I think for civil society, for the arts to thrive, the government has to give space now. They cannot uh, interfere. I think, like, um, my my own take on why there is not a lot of funding is also because, like, as a society, we don't really put a lot of value on art because there's no KPI. Like, oh, what did you get when you watch that play oh it was beautiful it made me cry you know Absolutely. I felt so many yeah. what was the KPI yeah. like do you learn something I think when society <laughs> is organised around yeah, commerce and, yeah. Yeah, and property then you know who's got time for the arts and that's why actually you know people ignore the arts in this country or even worse that we deride it right mm. we think that you know it's non-essential yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm so non-essential yeah <laughs> but you know to go back to the point about so it's tricky the role of government I mean at mm. this day they, they have to contribute. And I was talking to this Stanford professor recently on, on this topic. Um, and, you know, I was pointing out again that there's so much that individuals can do. And a lot of it has to be government-funded, government-mandated and run. And he said that's the difference between Germany and the U.S., for instance. In Germany, every town has got a museum. Whereas in the U.S., you know, it's all it's supposed to be funded by private individuals. So, you know, there isn't... Like, yeah, I mean, for Singapore, education. like, you know, uh, I think we've been quite lucky that the government prioritizes education and, you know, so we've got amazing libraries in Singapore. People from other countries, that's when they true. come here and I then they you, come to the libraries, yeah, yeah, they're <laughs> the like, holy libraries, shit, you mean yeah. this is free? Yeah, you've got all this stuff. Absolutely. And we, we can even let people, like, download e-books, you know, and, like, the, the library has lots of programs that they roll out, um, talks, workshops, all the time, and... I think that's something that we take for granted and we don't realise until like we go overseas and you're like, hey, oh, what? You mean like the library is not free? Mm. Yeah, it, it's really like mind-boggling in, in that way. Um, but anyways, uh, going a little bit back to what you were talking about, your work with potato productions, right? Mm. Um, and working with refugees. What exactly are you doing? 
Okay, so it is a big, big area and to be honest, I took a long time deciding whether I wanted to do this job because it's everything that you know I did in Cambodia for 10 years, more than 10 years and everything that NGOs have been trying to do in Cambodia for f 40 years. So it's poverty alleviation, you know, income generation, access to safe water, to healthcare, education. The problem with the refugees is on top of all these issues, there's an, there's an added layer, which is the fact that nobody wants them. They're stateless, yep. they're in limbo. And to solve that, really, it's, it's advocacy work and you have to work with governments. It's, it's a big, big project and I'm going in with my eyes open knowing that, you know, there's only so much I can do, but I do want to try and make a difference. Which um, governments are you talking to? Uh, to Myanmar and to the Thai government. So one of the ideas is to train the refugees at the Thai border, the Thai and Myanmar border in elder care because there is a growing demand for elder care and in Thailand especially, basically after Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, it's Thailand, the mm -hmm. fastest aging um, country in, in, in Asia. And Thailand's been very good in positioning itself as they don't Healthcare need, yeah they don't hub, only right? just have retirement villages mm. they have retirement resorts where yep. it's like it's a resort and you know foreigners pay like three thousand pounds a month to take mm. care of family members who've got dementia Alzheimer's and all that and there is um, there's a market for for the skills so the idea is to train. Refugees. refugees and internally displaced people in this area and hopefully convince the Thai government that you know, they are a resource that you can tap into and they add value to your country and give them papers so that they're mobile and they can get jobs and hopefully they can also get jobs in European countries that do take in refugees. So that's one thing and the other thing that we've got um, thinking about is uh, citizen journalism because in a lot of refugee camps actually foreigners are not allowed in. Mm. So how do we get the stories out? Often it's through third parties and I would love if you know we can hear the stories directly from the refugees themselves. And the third idea that my boss has come up with is a music library to try and capture the music that refugees and ethnic minorities listen to because we don't even know what they listen to you know and, and we want to preserve and so that this obscure music doesn't get lost and also so that's archived to, and to, yeah, yeah, and to, to let people know their, yes, how yeah. they live their lives. Yes. Like I think Especially in Singapore, because you know we don't even let refugees come in. You know, we're like good, but nope, nope. You know, uh, we turn them away at the borders, um, at the seas. We're like, you know, just turn around. We're not taking yeah. in any refugees. What do you think are like the? And I think the refugees are not really like high on our consciousness. You know, like we hear about earthquakes, we hear about you know um, disasters, and we generally have an empathy for for people who are going through that but then like somehow when people become displaced because of this and then well, like you know want to come into your country or like other countries we we seem to like lose that empathy somehow yeah. i think a lot of it is the politicians telling us that it's a zero sum game you know if we were to take in these um mm. refugees or you know it doesn't even have to be refugees right sometimes you know you hear politicians saying if you allow foreigners in yeah. they're going to go after your jobs and all that but the research shows actually that refugees are natural entrepreneurs just to go back to mm -hmm. social entrepreneurship yeah. yeah because they're hungry mm. so um, when you bring them in they actually create jobs because you know they are always thinking about survival. making money and survival and um, yeah, so, you know, if you think back to history, you will find that a lot of us came from, are descended from yeah. 
you know, they don't call them, yeah, they don't call them refugees, but economic migrants. And the most famous refugee, I guess, is Einstein, you know, Mm. refugees and and migrants have um, shown to add value to to the the countries that take them in. And I think Canada's very good that way, like most Canadians acknowledge that. And I think Canada's um, said that they will take in a lot more refugees and migrants. So would it be fair to say like the the f- the thing that is probably more important is to overturn this idea of refugees as people who are helpless and and um, you're absolutely right. So in fact, when I was no first agenda, asked yeah. um, to join this project, I thought it was a PR job. It's mm. a public relations job to try and change people's perceptions of refugees. You know, convincing them that despite what we are told, the research shows otherwise. Because like I think when I think of like the word refugee images that pop in my head is often like refugee camps that are really, really bad condition. People overcrowded areas, like crying children and then like women in in tattered clothing and then the headlines like, oh, they're being raped. You know, there's a lot of like, uh, they're they're hungry and, but there's no like stories of them being like who they were went back in their country. Like, oh, this person was a, I don't know, like a a store owner or a doctor or a nurse. Yes. It's just displaced people, poor thing, help You're them. absolutely right. Those stories do exist, but they are not in the mainstream media, mm-hmm. you know. And again, it's, yeah, I mean, for want of a better word, it's these right-wingers, right, who could convince us that, yeah, any form of welfare, it's bad, it's lazy people not wanting to contribute. Yeah, so, you know, that's that's also the a lot of the media, like, owned by Murdoch in particular mm. who try to uh, <laughs> try to t- to tell us this mm-hmm. yeah you're like so inspiring to me like every time I talk to you I'm like oh there's so much <laughs> stuff that I should be doing that I'm but not doing yeah just to talk about this yeah. welfareism thing because that is something that is quite um, that I think a lot about and in right now it's mm. more than welfareism it's a universal basic income that I've been thinking about mm-hmm. So, like, what for welfare, yeah, for, for, for UBI, it's a bit different than welfareism. Like, UBI is yeah. for everyone, right? Um, I love for it. welfareism, it's welfare is supposed to be targeted, it's means-tested, only a particular group will qualify. And um, the thing we need to think about for UBI is that at some point, I think, in the future, it's not just an idea anymore. It has to It has to come into place because of automation, because... You know, if jobs enough of us, yeah, if enough of us don't have jobs, and some of us like you know very good paying jobs, then what's going to happen? And you know, right now capitalists always have a market with their people buying their products, but if we don't have jobs, we don't have money. We, we can't, can't consume. We don't buy products. I mean, robots don't need to eat. So you know, what are we um, going to do with ourselves? Yes. We can't buy products. So <laughs> for, so yeah. you know, you have to find a way to make money out of these factory owners, the people who who own the robots and all that. So in Switzerland, for instance, they are thinking that they would tax for every robot that you have, they will tax um, the the factory owners and and amount. yeah, and the t- and the tax will go to you know mm. supporting a, a poor person. Yeah, so, um, and uni- universal basic income is, is another way to to forestall a possible dystopian future because what happens is, you know, the factory owners who have um, who have the robots and are making stuff, there will always be a segment of society that can afford things. Mm. So they can sell to fellow factory owners, to rich people, or they can yeah. export to countries that haven't automated, mm-hmm. right? But there will be a segment of society that will be penniless, right? Because they can't get jobs. And then... 
that's a recipe for revolution, right? So, you know, like... That's what I... We had a Long Gang Kitties episode oh, on UBI. And okay. that's what I said, essentially, is that UBI is to stop um, the revolution from Absolutely. happening. Absolutely. Because, it like, could, otherwise... It could happen. Yeah. You would have a Mad Max scenario and all the rich people have to be in gated communities and they will hire armed militia or yeah. mercenaries to protect. I wouldn't protect. be surprised. Right? Like, so I that mean, is one... It's just yeah, going to be, like, you know, like, let them sure. have cake scenario, you know? Like, you're in your gated community, everything's great, and then everyone else is outside the gates hungry and right. scrambling, scrambling for Scrambling for food. food. <laughs> and you're like, why can't they have cake? <laughs> you know, they're so hungry. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, it'll, like, be history repeating itself again so ubi is a way to forestall this dystopian mm -hmm. um potential reality right yeah but um and so it's really funny like the idea that like the rich people are earning so much money that they have to give money to the poor to stop them from like looting them i mean it's happened so that's, many that's times the question history. that my my rich friends are always asking me where's the money for this ubi going to come you, from you fucker. it's going to come from <laughs> taxation the way that yeah money for bridges yeah. for libraries for roads come from it's taxation it's just and really I, heavy I, yeah taxation. i don't know if you remember in this was in 2010 mm. um a swiss guy was fined 290,000 us dollars i believe it was uh, for speeding this was in switzerland and it was because his his net worth was 22 over 22 million yeah. us dollars so it's uh it's, we just uh, talked about this on Long Kang Kitties. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> yes. my goodness. I have to, <laughs> I have to spend yeah, yeah. more time listening to your show. Um, but, yeah, it's very interesting because it's very rare that fines mm. are Pegged progressive. Like, yeah. yeah, usually fines mm. are regressive, right? And by regressive, it means that you penalise poor people more that because... Is the, I think that's the biggest problem because what we were talking about on the Long Kang Kitties episode was the fact that, like, Poor people and rich people are subjected to the same amount of fines. So, for example, there was this case. GST of, is yeah. a great example of regressive ta yeah. tax because like poor person ends up paying more, right? As a yeah. percentage of their and then the government's like, oh, income. but we'll give them back the money with like vouchers and shit. Like, fuck you. That's not <laughs> enough, you know? Like, seriously. But yeah, like so. For example, a person who's earning like one point five k a month, right? And he gets like a parking ticket. And then he forgets to pay. There's overdue fines. Right. He, can't, he can't afford to pay the overdue fines. Right. Then he, he has to go to jail or whatever. And while he's in jail, you know, he he loses opportunity to work. So yes. that compounds his like problem, you know. Absolutely. And then when he comes out, he's at this like massive negative because mm. you have to pay the fines. And then he's lost time to work. Mm. Uh, whereas a rich person who commits the same fucking crime, he's like, oh, there's nothing to me. You know, he gets off. Right. So yeah, like, absolutely. and they don't feel the pinch because like, what is like, say, maybe say 5K to a person who... That's why earned, the Swiss yeah. model is so good because if yeah. the idea is punishment to feel the pinch, as you said, yeah, it has exactly. to, it has to, yeah, exactly. It has to be proportionate. But mm. yeah, um, yeah, taxation, for some reason, income tax, it's, you know, because it's progressive, people can accept that. They feel that, mm. you know, the more you earn, it should be yeah, a the more you bigger, give. bigger percentage of your salary. Like, and I think we, as a society, uh, we haven't yeah. learned how to deal with people who make astronomical sums of money because, yeah. like, look at Jeff Bezos and how much money he has, right? Or, like, Mark Zuckerberg. And I think that's because we are just in the very beginning stages of, like, accelerated growth like this. There's never been in the history of the world where... You know, we could produce so much in so little time and have so many people consume it all at once, mm. right? Um, and I think we're still trying to figure out how the fuck to do this. Well, when the machines come in, this will have to change because yeah. we can't all consume so much at exactly. one time. Like, the market will can, can will we shrink. even produce so much? Like, I don't, I don't know what's the new and paradigm who's gonna going to be. And consume this stuff? Yeah, right. But and like, and it's crazy to assume that we have like. But it's a very good resources. point about the money that people make now. Mm. I mean, 
first of all, I don't think anybody needs to be a billionaire. But I was thinking about this when I ran the social enterprise and how I think for a lot of social entrepreneurs, you know, how much do you pay yourself? How do you value your mm. your contribution to the business? So, for instance, if your team members earning a hundred US dollars a month, you know, if you paid yourself a thousand, you would already feel like, mm. you know, weigh on your conscience. You're already earning ten times as much. And I went to do the research in this in 1965. The average gap um, or the biggest gap between a worker and a CEO was twenty times in 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 the 60s, this is in the US. And now it's like, I think in 2000, it was more than 200 times. Mm. So, or 300 times, it's, it's, it's grown ridiculously. And I wonder whether, you know, initially when companies were set up in the 60s, they were more like these social enterprises like, like us, you know, we grew organically and then the boss actually felt bad because the mm. workers earned this much. And, yeah. and now I, I don't know why, you know, they're unable to see that um, it's, it's unconscionable the, I the gap feel, between I don't the... know if that's the problem of automation because mm -hmm. um, you know in the past like you, when you're in a factory you get to see your workers every day yes. they're not happy they're like hey boss fuck you right but now like you're you know you're in a different state whereas your warehouse like say Amazon is like all over the place you don't right. really need to see yeah. them right like, yes. and everything is like through computer like people so again, place orders online yeah, again, and you, it's, it's very removed yes. from like seeing the actual hardship that people have to go through so I again think. it goes back to that point about abstraction that we talked mm. about yes. right so maybe at the end of the day it really is about building human relationships i met this very interesting doctor um he's singaporean a medical doctor and his name is dr hakim young and he spent 20 years in afghanistan and they've come up with a model there because you know there are all these different ethnic groups and how do they live together yeah. after you know so many years of war mm. and what he's done is they call it relational learning circles because the other thing is these people a lot of them are illiterate so there's no point reading text and all yeah. that so they sit in circles and they share the three things they're supposed to relate to is first of all you relate to yourself as um, you know your, your physical and your social being and the the second thing they relate to is yourself with nature because without nature we are dead you know mm -hmm. as humans as, as animals and the third thing is relating to each other so it's called relational learning and it's a 13-week course i mean so i do think he's got a point at the end of the day you know we have to go back to relating to each other as human beings and that's why this company that i've joined i really like it because its primary focus is storytelling you know everything we try to do is to really get people's voices heard and it really resonates with me because that's one thing that i've told my boss that if it's one thing that I've learned from working in Cambodia, it's that more than wanting money, people want to be acknowledged, they want to be recognized, they want their existence to be valued. Yes, and validated and valued mm. and yeah, recognized. And that's what my Khmer friends are always telling me, you know, Diana, you're our link to the outside world because of the language problem or because, you know, I've, yeah, mainly because of language now, because I can speak English and I can communicate with more people. Yeah, and you know, they often say this when they feel especially in despair over the political situation of the country and they don't think they can change things internally. So they think that, you know, it's people like me, foreigners and the overseas Khmer who can really change things. Mm. So yeah, it's something that I do think is very important, getting to relate to one another as, as humans. And then we realize, and again, with the refugees, it's the same thing, isn't it? They are human beings like the rest of us. They have the same hopes and dreams and desires. They just want to take care of their family, live in peace. 
you know it's just that yeah they they are just happen to be in extraordinary circumstances and often through no fault of theirs right yeah so maybe to wrap things up if i gave you the power to enact one change in government like any any policy you want you know what would be a policy that you would enact um for me climate change is very real mm-hmm. you know if i could if i could do something that would try to stop the the impending doom <laughs> of impending climate doom. change that of climate mm-hmm. change that's what i would do yeah i mean is there like anything specific carbon emissions i mean i'm actually very glad with covid that you know mm-hmm. planes are not flying and, yeah. Yeah, and animals are coming back and mm. yeah so I think anything that would that would prevent carbon emissions, like I talked about, you know, keeping corporations under tighter rein and having some accountability. I mean, that's one thing that social enterprises try to do. They call it the triple bottom line. So you have social um, impact, environmental impact, as well as profit. So you know, I would love to if governments could do this for for all companies. Yeah, that is awesome. And if you have something you want to say to people who are listening to this, you know, if they want to do good, if they want to do altruistic things, what would be your advice? <laughs> I think it's, you know, doing good is important, but also having fun. It's no point, you know, doing good and then be miserable and dreary about it. And I met a lot of people like that, actually, after a certain time. Mm-hmm. They become so exhausted and cynical that, you know, that they... It, they, they earlier on, you mentioned idealism. So they move from being an idealist to a... Cynical person, a cynic, yeah. And that's not what you want as well. So, you know, you have to do good, have fun, be creative, which happens to be the motto of potato, (laughs) which is why I'm I'm attracted to this company. It sounds like a fucking awesome motto. That's something that I'm trying to do as well because it's very easy to get burnt out, you know, because sometimes it's like you take on the weight of the world and you're like trying to do stuff and like most people don't care. You're like, why the fuck am I doing this? Fuck all of you human beings. You all suck. So, Just die. So <laughs> when my manager wanted to, you know, stole from the yeah. business and wanted to throw acid mm. on my face, um, one of my best friends who happens to be Leon Pereira mm-hmm. oh, um, right. said to me, and this was really very valuable at the time. This was, I think, 2007? Yeah. Or 8? I can't remember now. But he said to me, don't, you know, think about the objective good, Diana not the subjective responses of the individual kamais because when i went in there what was the reason i wanted to do this it was you know to to help them live their lives it wasn't because i wanted gratitude or you know whatever from mm. them and that really helped me um calm down because you know if you had met me then i was in a mess because i just <laughs> felt so betrayed and right i can imagine yeah and and anyway it must really suck you know because you went there wanting to help and people are like, right, just like yeah you. <laughs> and it can really make you doubt mm. human nature and what it really did make me doubt was my judgment of people uh, that mm. I was such a poor judge of character but when Leon said that to me I actually it calmed me down and when I thought about it I said hey so if I look at the figures actually we're doing better than I thought because if you take away you discount the thieving mm. we're actually in a better, <laughs> better shape and that yeah. was something positive mm. and that uh-huh. helped me keep going yeah. and then so I did it for another you know eight years more and then I've changed the lives of um, recently a friend asked me how many people you know it's not just the women that I employed obviously in the guest house and the cafe and the and the bags business but also their families mm-hmm. you know and, and also there's a there's a passing it on there's a compounding effect right? yes yeah. because my managers have started their own projects feeding you know the parents who take their kids to the hospital for instance and they're actually pre-COVID people were doing well one was a mm. vice principal of a school another ran her own guest house yeah but 
But all that changed with COVID now because Siem Reap's a tourist town and they've yeah. all lost their jobs basically. So uh, that's why yes. UBI, UBI yes. is important. Well, yeah. yeah, that's something we can hope to aspire to, I think. Yeah. And we're going to wrap this up. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I really well, Thank you so much for the chat. It was yeah, always interesting so to talk nice. to you, Angie. <laughs> <laughs> I always love talking to you. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs>